really walking together in a, um, a special season. Um, I'm a second generation Messianic Jewish believer in Jesus and Yeshua. And uh, as Grant said, I grew up in a, a very interesting time in American history where there was a resurgence of Jewish people coming to faith. In the late 60s, early 70s, there was really an explosion as part of the Jesus movement of Jewish people turning to Jesus and recognizing him as the Jewish Messiah. This is an amazing occurrence because really for 2000 years up until that time, there was not a vibrant Messianic Jewish representation in the earth. There were small little pockets where you would hear of uh, communities where they would have some Jewish believers, but it wasn't a movement. And so I grew up in a time when the idea was that Jews who come to faith in Jesus are still called to live and identify as Jews. And this is a very, very strong statement, very much the opposite of what was decided at Acts 15, where they were wondering how to adopt the nations into this Jewish cultural experience. Uh, you know, you come into the 1970s and the big question was, how do we reclaim our Jewish heritage in the light of the really the Christian portrayal of Jesus throughout all the world? And so it's been a, it's been a fascinating journey to be a part of that. Uh, I moved to Israel in 2015. I've lived here for almost five years now. Um, and I helped to lead uh, and coordinate the alignment efforts. Now, when we talk about alignment, it's important to say that we're not aligning people to ourselves. You know, that's not the goal. The goal is that we are building alignment to God's kingdom together as one new man. Along with this idea, a, um, a famous uh, ecumenical rabbi who's trying to build unity has said, one new man cannot mean one less Jew. It's a very important concept that Jews still maintain some form of identity and covenant relationship, even though when we come together as the body, we have all the same promises, all the same life-giving uh, source of the Spirit of God, and we are together as one. And this is why sometimes you'll hear the analogy that um, the one new man is really a marriage. And though there are problems with that analogy, I like it because if it does show that you have two distinct peoples coming together into something brand new, just like when you have a husband and a wife, the man doesn't become a woman and the woman doesn't become a man, thank God. Uh, but instead, we become something new spiritually together with Yeshua as the head. And I think this is a beautiful picture of what God is doing as we're joined to him the nations are also joined one to another and also part of this great commonwealth of Israel. But I wanted to talk briefly today on the idea of God's timepiece. Now, in reference to the end times, it's a very uh, loaded concept and we could spend hours on it together, but I wanted to talk about God's timepiece. I don't know how many of you like horology or are horologists as a hobby, but how many of you know what horology is? It is the art of crafting watches and clocks. Or if you're a collector, it's the study of that art and the, and the appreciation of it. 
And if we look at what God is doing to move all of history from fallen man uh, back in the first Adam through the time of Jesus and his death and resurrection and until the ultimate culmination when the world is redeemed and we really return to a state of Eden where we are reconciled in relationship to God fully, all humanity will be restored, all creation will be restored. But God has set it up in such a finely tuned and planned way, much like a watchmaker might have. And what I mean by that is if you take a watch, a mechanical watch, not one of these Apple watches or, or fangled, you know, uh, digital watches, but each piece of that watch is designed with exquisite care. If you don't have the right tension on the springs, if you don't have the right ratio of the gearing system, if you don't have the right um, connection of, of fluidity with all of those parts, then the, the watch is worthless. It won't operate correctly. And so when we talk about God's plan for world redemption, we have to have all of it or else everything will be suspended in time. We need to have God's fullest plan come to fruition. He's have every gear working and operating fluidly so that the culmination of history, which we all want Jesus to return and take up his place on the throne. I'm sitting about 20 miles from the uh, Mount of Olives where I'm sitting in my home here. And I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus sets his feet back on the Mount of Olives and reclaims his rightful place to put everything back in order. Amen? So this is what we're looking for. But what I'm about to share may challenge some of your theology and what you've come to believe about the end times. And that's okay. Really, frankly, I think all of us see in part, just as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, and I think that we approach uh, aspects of the end times with great humility to say that we see things in part. And look, I could be wrong on some of these things, but we do the best that we can as believers. We wrestle together to try to determine what the word of God says, and then to see how this might apply in our context and walk it out. So though we believe we've come to understand some really powerful truths, I want to exhort you to go read the word. Let's be word-centered people, Jesus-centered people. He's the living word, right? There's nothing that needs to frighten us about new ideas as long as we ground ourselves in the word of God. So we are living in an astounding time. I was in Geneva just a few years ago to participate in a prayer event, and we marked the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Think about that just for a minute. 500 years since the work of Luther and Huss and others. Think about that. Now, since that time, the body of believers throughout the nations of the earth has gone through rapid change. You have the uh, Moravian revivals with Zinzendorf and the Hundred Year Prayer Movement. You have um, the Great Awakenings of the 1700s. You have Charles Finney, the Prince of Preachers who arises. You have the explosion of the rapid growth of the underground Chinese church. You have African revivals. You have incredible mission to the world to bring the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And interestingly enough, we, we had some Polynesian uh, leader representatives come to Israel 
and they brought with them a stone. Well, why did they bring a stone? They came as a symbol to give this stone to various leaders and they brought several stones because they wanted several leaders to have them. And they presented this stone with great pomp and circumstance to say, the gospel has reached us and we want to let you know that it has come back to Jerusalem. Now, if you were to take a pin and a globe, I have a little globe here, and you were to come from Israel, which is right where my finger is pointing, and draw that pin, then the Polynesian islands are right on the furthest point of the globe away from Israel. And this is an astounding thing to say that the gospel has gone forth to all the world. Now, I remember in um, my 20s and even in my teens, there were some great rallies around getting the mission to the 1040 window. How many of you remember the goal to complete the evangelism to the 1040 window? And I remember the year that they wanted to complete this mission. That year was 2020. And we are within a stone's throw, no pun intended from the earlier story, where the gospel will have been proclaimed throughout not just the 1040 window, but through every tribe and people group. I don't know whether it's 10 years or 15 or 20, but I want you to carry the feeling of this. The weight of this is that the gospel has gone forth through most of all the parts of the earth. Think about that. What is the generation that we are living in? What is the season that we've been entrusted with? Yet, Israel remains central to God's plan for world redemption. This is an interesting anomaly that for 2,000 years, the cross has had a very mixed effect on the Jewish people unto salvation. I would propose, though, that Israel is so critical towards God's time clock for world redemption that we will not see Jesus return until Israel asks him to come back, until they say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. We'll get to more in that. I want to read this statement to you. And I'm not going to tell you where it's from just yet, but I want you to read this. I want to read it to you and think about what it is implying. The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. For a hardening has come upon part of Israel in their unbelief towards Jesus, from Romans 11:25. Peter says to the Jews of Jerusalem after Pentecost, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for establishing all that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That's from Acts 3 verses uh, 19 through 21. Paul echoes him, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean 
but life from the dead. Life from the dead being almost a phrase that means the resurrection of the dead, right? That's from Romans 11:15. Finally, the full inclusion of the Jews in Messiah's salvation in the wake of the full number of Gentiles will enable the people of God to achieve the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in which God may be all in all from Ephesians 4, uh, 13 and also Ephesians 4, 6. That is a weighty, weighty passage that connects several scriptures together in a dynamic way. But the point that I want you all to get is this, that the Messiah's coming is suspended in history until the recognition by Israel of who their Messiah is. That may challenge some of your theologies. And actually in Israel, we're going through tremendous controversy over a TV channel you might have heard about and various evangelical responses to whether or not this channel should exist in Israel. What does this channel do? Well, it has content that boldly proclaims the new covenant scriptures and what we believe to be true about Jesus and, and who he is and what he came to do. Well, there has been a debate on whether or not it's our responsibility as believers to proclaim that message to the Jewish people at all, or whether we should just let them be part of God's covenant people that he'll take care of at some point in the future. Friends, I feel it is a very dangerous thing for the church to abdicate its responsibility to be a people that boldly proclaims our faith to the Jewish people, to my people, but also to your brothers, to those who we're seeking to be reconciled to as one commonwealth together in God's kingdom. So the, the return of Jesus is contingent upon Israel's repentance. Even Yeshua says in Matthew, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So if we have a passion for Jesus and a desire and longing for his return, then we should also have a passion and desire to see the Jewish people saved. This is a very sensitive issue because under the cross for 2000 years at various times and in various intensities, my people have been persecuted, manipulated, slaughtered, and oppressed instead of given the life message of love and reconciliation. Do you know that something is interesting about the identity of the church itself? And if you think curiously about it, the church would not exist had it not been for the people of Israel. This is amazing that the church cannot define itself in any other way than by tying itself to the identity of the person of Yeshua and even more so to the entire foundation of what made Yeshua legitimate as the Messiah of not just Israel, but all of the world. It was Yeshua, the Jewish boy who grew up without spot or wrinkle that became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John said, or the lamb who was able to open the seals, as it says in Revelation. So look at what it says again 
in Acts 3, verse 18 through 21. It said, but what God foretold through the mouth of all his prophets that Messiah was to suffer, so he has fulfilled. This is the verse that I want you to understand and, and grasp. This is when Peter was preaching to thousands who had come after the, the Holy Spirit had been poured out among the 120 and was spreading like wildfire. The message was being validated, and he says this, Repent, therefore, and return, so your sins might be blotted out, and so that times of relief might come from the presence of God, and that he might send Yeshua, the Messiah who's been appointed for you. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all the things that God spoke about long ago through the mouth of his holy prophets. You see, Messiah's return, as Peter himself said, on the day of Shavuot, which we're going to be celebrating in just a few days, the day of Pentecost, Messiah's return was contingent upon repentance from not just the nations, but who was he speaking to? The people of Israel. That Jesus himself would remain in heaven until the time that they would repent, and then the restoration of all things would come about. That is a powerful concept, folks, because our desire and our prayer should not be focused only on the nationhood of Israel as a place in the world. And I'm, I support it, uh, uh, perhaps a humorous aside, but also sad in its way, is that um, the Holy Land is by no means holy right now. There are factions, there are mixed governments, secular, orthodox there are all kinds, Messianic Jews, and there is great unrest. There's even great sin among our people, just like there is in other democracies around the world. We have not been a nation that has been a light to the nations as a nation. So the Holy Land is not the Holy Land yet until that moment when Jesus returns. So in our prayer focus, we do, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the physical entity, but we've got to pray and be burdened with the salvation of the people. Because until they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus will not return. This is my theological challenge, is that we might think that it's going to happen after we're all raptured out and that the Jewish people have an opportunity then to respond to the, the shock and the awe of seeing all of the, the people that they knew gone. But I believe that Romans 11 paints a very different picture. And actually, I believe Paul had to change a little bit of his theology to match God's clock and timepiece. Because the Jewish mindset was that as soon as Yeshua had ascended, there was nothing waiting but for him to come and take up rulership, kingship over the nation of Israel, the physical nation to overthrow Rome, and that from that place of government, Yeshua would then raise up an army to take over all of the earth. And then all the earth coming under the rule and the, and the establishment of God's order would then be holy and made righteous. But that was not God's plan. That was a gear out of place. It was a spring that had busted. And in so Paul, after seeing the rejection of synagogue after synagogue, some would re respond, but most 
the majority rejected his message. He had to come to a place of revelation to say, what is God really doing with the Jewish people and the nations? So many of you have read and heard from others. I'll just read briefly from Romans 11, 11 through 14. Paul says, they did not stumble to fall, did they? Sure. I mean, Paul, imagine what he must be thinking. I, you know, here we have the Holy Spirit. We have the revelation of who Jesus the Messiah is. We've been waiting since the time of Moses for a prophet like Moses. They couldn't have stumbled to fall forever. And he says, may it never be. But by their false step, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. And I'll just push pause here on our reading. Are we a people, a nation who provokes Israel to jealousy, not by force, but by our love and by our intercession and by our witness? We have to be passionate about making Israel jealous, not for the sake of jealousy, but for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of Jesus's honor. Paul continues, he says, now if their transgression leads to riches for the world and their lost riches for the Gentiles, then how much more will their fullness be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Insofar as I am an emissary to the Gentiles or an apostle to the Gentiles, I highlight my ministry. So if somehow I might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. In concluding, do you know that Paul's attitude of heart was that he himself would even be banished from Messiah for the sake of his people? That he would be cursed and cut off from salvation. And for us as believers, it's almost unimaginable that we would give up our own salvation for the sake of someone else. But this is what Paul's burden was. He said, I pray that I myself were cursed and banished from Messiah for the sake of my people, my own flesh and blood, who are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants. How else could God bring about world redemption if he doesn't save my people? And then he says, just a one half chapter later, a chapter later, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation, not for their nation, not for their governmental authority, not for their worldly influence, not for their Nobel Peace Prizes or Nobel Prizes in science. It is for their salvation. And friends, my urging today is that we would capture the heart of the Spirit to focus our prayers on the salvation of Israel. Uh, he says just a few verses later, for Messiah is the goal of the Torah as a means to righteousness for everyone who keeps trusting. The goal of the living word, the, or the goal of the written word, is the living word. <laughs> the goal of the written Torah is the living word in Messiah Jesus. You know how when you have a magnifying lens, you can take that lens and hold it out in the sun, and it will make a nice bright circle on the ground. But if you start to adjust that magnifying lens, it can concentrate that light into a smaller and smaller circle. And if the conditions are right, will start a fire. 
Folks, I believe that if we will adjust our prayer focus in these days, in this season where the gospel is going around the world, that the light concentration will ignite a fire of revival, much like the Acts 2 revival that we saw 2,000 years ago. Think about what we are being given an opportunity to pray for and to stand for is the salvation of Israel leading to the return of our Savior, Jesus. And as I speak, I'm getting filled with the anointing and the emotion of it, because this is the culmination. But if we miss this piece and we sacrifice the intensity, it will go to another generation to do. Let's not pass up this opportunity. Let's train our young people in a heart, not just for the people of Israel, but for their salvation as a people. We want to not abandon our love for Israel, but we want to add to that the focus on their salvation. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, let's just focus our last uh, minute here in prayer for them. And then I'll turn it back over to Grant and Jonathan. Abba Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to proclaim the truth of your word. And I pray that in any error that I've said today, that has been my words and not your words, I pray that you would refine in the fire and in the spirit, Lord God. And let none of us be dismayed, but always be secure that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will remind us of all things and teach us of all things that we need to know. And I do pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters, the Jewish people, that they would come to an encounter with your love, that the veil would be removed, not through debate, not through manipulation, but through the tearing down of the spiritual strongholds that have covered the eyes of our people for so long. And we just release the spirit of intercession among not just this body, but anyone who would watch this message and anyone who would go out uh, into this field, the mission field, that they would also add to that this intercessory burden for the people of Israel and their salvation. In Yeshua's name, amen.